we will read responsively questions and answers to the Heidelberg Catechism here from Lord's Day 7, starting in question 20. Are all people then saved through Christ just as they were lost through Adam? No, only those are saved who through true faith are grafted into Christ and accept all his benefits. What is true faith? True faith is not only a sure knowledge by which I hold as true all that God has revealed to us in his word. It is also a wholehearted trust which the Holy Spirit works in me by the gospel that God has freely granted not only to others, but to me also forgiveness of sins, eternal righteousness and salvation. These gifts are purely of grace, only because of Christ's merit. What then must a Christian believe? All that is promised us in the gospel, a summary of which is taught us in the articles of our Catholic and undoubted Christian faith. What are these articles? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And now the scripture reading from God's holy word, which comes to us from Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. It says, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for, By faith, we understand the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. So far, the reading of God's word, may he add his blessing to it as we consider it this evening, in particular considering faith, the necessity and nature of true faith is the topic for us this evening. And last week, if you were here with us, we considered the progressive unfolding of the gospel of God, that seed form of the promise that grew larger and larger and was expanded upon and God added promise upon promise, revealing what he would do eventually through his son, Jesus Christ. And so we considered that that was the good news, the gospel, the message that we need to hear in order to be saved, in order to be saved from our sin and misery. But Hearing is not enough. Hearing just with the ears, as we consider this morning and heard from Isaiah, many people hear the words of truth, but few actually come to believe in it. Uh, Many are called, but few are chosen. Now, why is that? Why is that? Well, we considered it a few weeks back. It's by our own nature, our sinful nature. We suppress the truth in unrighteousness, as Paul says in Romans chapter 1. We are prone to evil and prone to reject God and his truth. By nature, 
We do not want to give up our own autonomy, our own apparent autonomy, rather. Uh, Naturally, we are not a law unto ourselves. We are not the captain of our own lives. Um, But we like to believe that. We like to think that. And we like to act according to that. And so by nature, we, we don't want to give ourselves over to God and his ways and what he has done for us. In our sinful nature, we are prone towards evil and unwilling to submit to God's truth. And so the gospel of truth, it goes forth. It's proclaimed all around the world, but not all accept it as true. Not all entrust themselves to Jesus. And as we'll see, only those who have been born again by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, can actually come to saving faith. And true faith, as we're seeing, is absolutely necessary for salvation. That's our first point tonight that we see from the Heidelberg Catechism. First, the necessity of true faith. And we saw that all people fell in Adam or through Adam. We all sinned because he was our legal federal representative there in the Garden of Eden. So all have fallen short of the glory of God. We're all under God's condemnation by birth, as it were, all with that sinful nature, unable to please God in and of ourselves, all fallen in and through Adam. But here we learn by comparison that not every single person of the human race will be saved through Christ. Who will be saved? Well, we read it aloud together. Only those are saved who through true faith are grafted into Christ and accept all of his benefits. I love that language of grafted in. It's uh, using the language of um, agriculture and uh, gardening, right? When you take uh, a shoot or a branch and graft it into a fruit-bearing tree so that it receives the sap and energy from the vine and from the trunk and it begins to bear fruit. And so we need to be grafted into Jesus, who is the vine, which we saw uh, last week with Isaiah chapter 5. We need to be grafted into Christ himself to receive all of his benefits. And we are grafted in to Jesus in that way, to have union with him by faith, by faith in Jesus. Paul says in Ephesians 2, verse 8 through 9, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. So Salvation comes through faith, and it is by grace, not according to our works, but according to Christ's merits alone, as we confessed in the Catechism. This is not of yourselves, Paul says. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. It's good for us to remember that, that as Christians, we do not claim that we are better than anyone else, but rather we claim that Christ is better than everyone, which is the main point in Hebrews He is better. He has done what we have all failed to do. And we have been grafted into him by the work of the Spirit. And we boast in the Lord, not in ourselves. We boast in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when we look at the entirety of God's word, we find that it tells us that salvation is received by faith alone in Christ alone. This is how we enter into God's family to receive all the benefits as heirs of the Father, God the Father, because children are heirs and have an inheritance set before them. And so as children of God, we have an inheritance set before us. So how do we become children of God? By faith, by faith in God and his promises to us and what he has done. We saw that a bit last week when we considered Abraham, that 
We are connected to the people of old, like Abraham and all of his descendants, because we too are saved by faith alone. We are justified by faith in God and his promises. Now, in the preface of his gospel account, uh, John, the apostle, he says this related to that point. To all who did receive Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. How do you become a children of God? Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. So what is he saying there? He's saying that it is not enough to be born simply into a Christian family, to be raised Christian. That's not enough to be saved. It's not enough to be baptized. It is not enough to sit in the pew week after week listening to God's word. It's not enough to read your Bible and to agree with it. Now, all of those things are great and useful. Those are things that God has given us, great gifts, but they're all meant to pull us towards himself, to pull us toward Christ. Because none of those outward gifts that we just mentioned, none of those outward gifts of the covenant of grace, the covenant community, will benefit you until you yourself personally lay a hold of the promises that God is extending out to you and you, you accept those, you receive those by faith. So true faith is absolutely necessary. And it's good for us to remember, especially the young ones, that nobody, nobody else uh, in your life can lay a hold of those promises for you. Jesus as he offers himself to you, you must lay a hold of him by true faith. You must reach out and grab a hold of Jesus by your own faith. And Paul says that this is not a work of us. This is a gift from God. So he's not calling us to work. He's calling us to rest and receive what God has done for us. What do I mean by that? Well, Throughout the Bible, we are called to believe in God and his promises or to trust in Jesus as our Savior. And my professor, Michael Horton, has an interesting comment here. He writes that the use of the prepositional phrases in or into, uh, which are used in the Greek, in or ace in the Greek, uh, they mean to believe, or in the phrase such as to believe in Jesus, they are there, those prepositional phrases, to emphasize the transfer of trust from ourselves to God in Christ. So we are entrusting ourselves over to him, entrusting ourselves over to his care and what he has done, giving our whole selves to him, putting all of our hopes, all of our aspirations, all of our dreams, and all of our hope of salvation in the end into the hands of Christ, our Savior. In a sense, True faith is in a demand that we stop working. What do I mean? Stop working. Well, Horton, again, he says that the demand for faith is a command to cease our labors and to enter into God's rest, which he has secured for us. So true saving faith is in a way passive and receptive. It is an open stance to truth. It is, as we looked at this morning, to yield to the truth as it manifests itself to you and to be willing, open, to be changed by that truth. And that's what the author of Hebrews says earlier in his letter. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9 through 10, he says, There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. 
For anyone who enters God's rest also must rest from their works, just as God did from his. What does that mean? Well, God is, through the gospel call, calling us to cease and desist from trying to get there by our own striving, by our own obedience according to the law, and instead to rest and trust in what Christ has done for us, the one who has already entered into that rest. He's the only one who's passed through death and entered into that glorious rest. And he's promising us that he will bring us there too if we only trust in what he finished and accomplished for us through his life, death, and resurrection. Now remember, you cannot uh, lay a hold of Christ and all that he offers to you by your own obedience or by your striving. That's not how you lay a hold of what Christ has done. Only faith, only faith will do. Faith in Jesus is absolutely necessary for salvation. He alone, as we considered a few weeks back, is the sufficient and effective mediator between God and man. He is the God-man, Jesus Christ, the one who can bridge that gap between us and reconcile us, bring, again, peace between us and God. He alone, as well, can usher us into that eternal Sabbath rest that our hearts so long for. Now, to capture this resting and receiving, one of my favorite hymns uh, really captures it well with the words uh, in the first and second stanza, the hymn, Not What My Hands Have Done. And it goes this way. Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load. So he's saying nothing that I've done in the past, nothing that I can do in the future can, can handle or can bear my awful load or can deal with my sin and give me peace with God. None of that. And he goes on to say, thy work alone, O Christ, can ease this weight of sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. And so in that, we, we hear the voice of faith uh, saying, not, not nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. So that's the necessity of true saving faith. Now, our second and our last point tonight, the nature of true faith. Now, theologians uh, have long identified three parts of true saving faith, three parts, and they're represented here in the Heidelberg Catechism in question and answer 21. You can find them there. Knowledge, assent, and trust. It's a bit tricky to see the assent part, but we can look at it here. True faith is not only a sure knowledge, so that's the first part, knowledge, by which I hold as true. That's the assent part, or the conviction, or agreement that what we know from God's word is true. But also, he says, it is a wholehearted trust. So knowledge, assent, and trust. And in preparation for tonight's message, I went back and listened to uh, Pastor Daniel Ventura's sermon. If you remember, if you were here, when, we get, when he did that conference for us and he looked at this passage was his opening uh, passage here in Hebrews chapter 11 on the nature of faith. And he has some great insight. I recommend that you go back to the podcast, uh, our sermon archive, and listen to that. I commend that to you. Uh, very insightful and helpful. Now, 
just briefly, we'll break down those three parts of true faith. First, knowledge. Knowledge, you need to know the basics of what is revealed in God's word, the content of what we're holding on to, laying a hold of by faith, which is the gospel, the good news of our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, what God has done, not our doing, but what God has done, the doing of the Father, the doing of the Son, the doing of the Holy Spirit. We believe not in what we have done, but in what God has done for us. And that's exactly how the Apostles' Creed is structured and laid out before us. Um, and we'll see that next week, that, that the Apostles' Creed is divided into three parts. What God the Father has done, what God the Son has done, and what God the Holy Spirit has done for us. And so the first necessity for arriving at true faith is to have a knowledge of that, those basics, the content of what we believe what is revealed in God's word. And naturally, someone needs to bring that gospel to us, right? Um, secondly, assent. Assent, or it means an agreement or conviction that says, yes, those things revealed in God's word, they are true. And it's fascinating that the Hebrew verb in the Old Testament for to believe, so if you're running, reading through the Old Testament and you see the word to believe or someone believed, uh, typically, the most often word that's used in the Hebrew is aman, and you can probably hear what that's related to. It's the root word for amen, where we get the English word amen, and it means I agree. Yes, it is true. And so uh, what we, when we say amen to God and uh, in response to his word, we are, uh, we are speaking out of faith. And we are assenting to it. We are agreeing. We are saying, yes, that is true. We believe that to be true. Even though I can't see with my eyes what God's word speaks to us, I believe that what he says exists and that it makes the most sense of the human experience. It is the best possible explanation of all things. The meaning and purpose of life, in fact, is the only logical framework that is consistent through and through. I believe. Amen. Right? That's assent. But that's not enough. The third part is absolutely essential trust, that wholehearted trust. It is what sets saving faith apart from, well, unsaving faith or the faith that demons or even Satan has. What do I mean by that? Well, James in his letter in chapter 2, verse 19 says, you believe that there is one God. So content, right? You believe, you assent to that as true. You say, amen, there's only one God. James says, good, you should. But even the demons believe that and shudder. So even they have that knowledge and even they say, yes, it is true. They know it and they agree with it. Actually, they probably know the truth and agree with it more than we do because they have existed for many, many, many thousands of years. Nevertheless, they refuse to yield to that truth. They refuse to entrust themselves to God and his grace. They constantly kick against that truth in rebellion. They refuse to entrust themselves to God and his saving grace. And so trust, trust, that wholehearted trust is when you finally accept and rejoice in this, that what happened 2,000 years ago in human history, on the cross of Calvary, when Christ died and was crucified, and then when he rose again three days later from the dead, that, that that happened not only for others, but that happened 
also for you in particular, for you personally. That means that Jesus was there on the cross dying, thinking about you, remembering you, carrying your sin on the cross for, him, for, for your sake, to redeem you, not just for others, but also for you. Martin Luther famously, famously said that salvation is found in the personal pronouns. The personal pronouns. What does that mean? Well, trusting faith, true saving faith, uh, goes from saying that Jesus is the Lord and the Savior to saying Jesus is my Savior and my Lord. The personal pronouns. Now, that is true faith. It is knowledge, assent, and trust. Giving your whole self over to Jesus and what he has done for sinners like you and saying, yes, he is my Savior, my Lord. Now, how do we come to that place? How do we have that faith? Where does it come from? Well, it's worked into our hearts by the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the gospel. True faith in Christ, we've seen, is necessary for salvation. But apart from God's Spirit working in our hearts, we too would continually suppress that truth in unrighteousness. So faith itself is a gift from God. And so we must pray that God would open up our hearts to yield to the truth, to stop, to cease and desist from our evil doing and cease and desist from trying to get there by our own sinful strivings and instead trust in what Christ has done. Ask that God would open up our hearts like he did with Lydia when Paul was preaching the gospel to her at the riverside there outside of the city of Philippi that he would open up our hearts and put within us, work within us, saving faith, that knowledge, that assent, and that trust. So may God show us through uh, truth about Jesus, show us the truth about Jesus. May he give us that hearty amen that says, yes, I agree that that is true. And may the Spirit open up our hearts to entrust ourselves to him, body and soul and life and in death to say yes, that is true, and Jesus is my Savior and my Lord, both now and forevermore. Amen. We'll end there tonight. Let's pray. Thank you, God, our Father, God the Son, and God, Holy Spirit, for your work of salvation. We trust not in our own doing, but in your doing and what you have done for sinners like us. And we rejoice that you have opened up our hearts to yield to that truth and to receive from Christ all the benefits that he won for us through his merits, through his striving, through his obedience and his blood shed for us to forgive us all our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, we thank you for this faith that you've worked into our heart, O Holy Spirit, and we ask that for anyone who might be here tonight and we think especially of our young covenant children, Lord, we ask that you would open up their hearts in your timing, even now we ask that you would do it. But in your timing, Lord, open up their hearts that they too might lay a hold of the promises that you have for them in the gospel, that they would cling to Jesus and entrust themselves, body and soul, to him, both in life and in death, and find that only comfort that we have in belonging to Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.